You're listening to Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show about books, people who read, and how reading at its very best is a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. There is the old philosophical question. If a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, does it make a sound? Likewise, if you read a book and don't discuss it, have you enjoyed all the perks of being a book lover? I'm your host, Amy. I've been a member of numerous book clubs over the last 25 years and started quite a few. I love asking people what they're reading so that they'll ask me the same. I'm a vintage bookseller, a traveler wannabe, and a fanatic about dogs. And I'm your host, Carrie. I'm an English teacher, a freelance writer, a blogger, and the person whose Instagram feed features more photos of my cats than my kids. Each week, we will talk with a guest who shares the love of reading, how they impart that passion, and what books really catch them on fire. We will also tell you about our literary lives, what books are on our nightstands, and other bookish fun. Welcome. Our guest today is Minda Honey, a woman who's talented and busy with lots of irons in the fire. She's a local writer, the new director of Spalding University's creative writing program, as well as the creator of Leo Weekly's advice column, Ask Minda Honey, where she gives her answers to all those relationship questions you've been dying to ask. She's currently busy writing a memoir that sounds similar to Sex in the City if it represented single black women in Southern California. We're going to talk all about the queen of black American literature, Toni Morrison, and what other books you should check out if you want to see her influence on up-and-coming black writers. She also speaks to the best ways to make opportunities for yourself if you're a writer, and her new plan to motivate people to read more with the age-old incentive, money. It's a thrill to have Minda on the show. We want to welcome Minda Honey. She's a local writer, and she's also the director of the Spalding Creative Writing BFA program. So welcome, Minda. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. So one of the reasons that we have you here with us today is that the Speed Cinema at the Speed Art Museum is doing a um, showing um, from July 26th to July 31st of a documentary about the life of Toni Morrison. It's called The Pieces I Am. And you are doing a little talk back with one of those dates. So after the viewing, you're going to be leading a discussion about that. Correct. So it's actually Sunday, July 28th at 5 p.m. I was invited by Dean Otto, I think because he probably saw my Facebook post about how I taught Sula um, in the African-American literature course that I just wrapped up this uh, in June for Spalding. And, you know, the students had mixed reviews, but it's one of my favorite Morrison books. That film first showed at the Sundance Film Festival, mm-hmm. and it's finally here. Have you gotten a chance to see it, or are you going to be seeing it for the first time that night? I actually watched it last night. Um, it's beautifully done. What I really appreciated about the style of this documentary was that you got a ton of Toni Morrison and then it was just accentuated by, you know, her peers and other folks from the literary industry singing her praises, you know, as it should be. (laughs) So did she in this film and, and Amy and I are going to go see it on the, I think it's the 26th. Is that right? Um, you should come on the 28th. <laughs> so does the film set it up for us? Does she talk about her motivations or 
how she went about writing or is it mostly like what motivated her or is it maybe a little bit of all of it it's really just kind of the unfolding of a life so you really start with um you know how her family ended up in lorraine ohio what her childhood was like what she was like growing up uh, and all the choices she kind of made that that led her to to becoming tony morrison she of course also speaks about her writing practice and as well as a lot about what it is to be a black woman writer and making sure that she's always centering the the black reader versus you know the white male gaze uh, within her work Uh, so she talks um, at length about that as well. You had mentioned about Sula that you had taught that, but you said the students weren't really on board with that. So what was it that they had issue with? They thought it was really weird. <laughs> and I'm like, just relax into the world of Toni Morrison. It's supposed to be kind of like Southern gothy and you, um, it's playful. And I think also students at that age when you're in you know your late teens early 20s your morals are a little bit more rigid because you've yet to cross any of those taboos in life and as you get older life gets grayer uh in so many ways and so i think they take it like oh my gosh she slept with her best friend's husband like how like how could sula do this and it's like well you know Life, y'all. Life. Things so, happen. Things happen. So they, they can be very rigid around morality. But, you know, I, I think we all were. So you said Sula was your favorite of Toni Morrison's. Why, why is that? Why that one? Because it centers um, black women friendships. Yeah, so I read Sula a, a few years ago, and I just really fell in love with the language because, I mean, it's Toni Morrison, so it's very epic. But... Also, just the fact that she's centering the relationships between women, the friendships between women, um, this like cross-generational lineage of women really mattered a lot to me. And now that I just reread it recently with my class, I have a lot of thoughts, you know, now that I'm like a single woman in my mid-30s about Sula and Nell and that conversation that Sula and Nell have in the end when Sula's on her deathbed and Nell is, you know, heartbroken that Sula slept with her husband her husband has left and she and Sula and Nell are just kind of like reviewing the choices that they've made in their lives and Sula's like well you know at least my life is my own like I don't have like this secondhand loneliness and so I think about that a lot love is always like a risk and you know because people are risky and you just never know how things are going to work out so you should make these choices that you think are going to make you happy and just kind of hope for the best instead of kind of putting all your happiness on like this other person. Um, because if you're going to be disappointed in the end, at least you, sh- you should be disappointed because you took agency over your life. So Sula now feels even more meaningful for me at this age. So when I was at Bellarmine for my undergrad, I took a, it was an entire class on Toni Morrison. Now, oh. granted, this was like 20 five plus years ago. So we read Song of Solomon, Sula, Bluest Eye, Beloved. I think probably Song of Solomon was my favorite, but it's been so many years since I read it that it's not it's not at the forefront. But I do remember uh, Dr. Celeste Nichols was my teacher for that class. And she talked about, I believe we talked about how related to the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. And, and so that has kind of always stuck with me. But in terms of Morrison's story that 
I remember that would be beloved. Mm -hmm. Just, and I think I wasn't at the time, but now that I'm a mom, it's even more powerful. So how about you, Amy? I would say beloved. That's the first Morrison book that I read. I read it in college in a black literature class and I had a really good professor and she really made that book stellar. I mean, the book's stellar anyway, but I mean, she really enhanced it a lot. And I do like the little bit of, I don't know if you'd call it magical realism or like the little bit of a ghost story in there appealed to me as well. But that one was my favorite. I read Bluest Eye a couple of years ago and I enjoyed it. But that's just that is such a tough story. It's just really a hard story to read. It was excellently written. I didn't enjoy it. Yes. Toni Morrison never lets lets us off easy no, as readers. No. So. What is it about Toni Morrison's writing that you think is most impactful? I mean, she's just a master of the craft, you know? I mean, just her wordplay, her descriptions. She's just, you know, able to build these worlds and completely pull you in. Like, you're completely absorbed into it. I think she's probably like the the greatest living writer (laughs) in existence. So (laughs) it's hard to say like she's just she's just a genius at what she does. So when you were teaching Sula to your students, did you focus more on the story? Or did you focus more on her writing and sort of using her writing and her sentence structure and that sort of as a model for your students or maybe you did both well this was a literature class so we mainly focused on the story so the way i structured this class was i took a classic and i paired it with a contemporary book by a black writer to just show the the lineage of these themes that we're still dealing with so for Sula I paired it with The Mothers by Britt Bennett and if you haven't read The Mothers it takes place in San Diego and it's about a young woman who her senior year of high school becomes pregnant by a young man who's a couple years older than her who is also the pastor's son and her mother had like within the past year committed suicide and you know she goes away to college and like kind of lives this bigger life after she has an abortion and um and her best friend stays in that town and and marries this man and she comes back and she has an affair with the man that she had become pregnant by because they just kind of had this unfinished business so it was the same sort of focus on the relationships between women and also this choice between do you like hitch your life to a man and his dreams and his aspirations or do you build a life of your own especially if you're going to end up in this lonely place regardless so paralleling the, the themes between the the two books so we talked a lot about the events of the books but also just like the themes the morals happening unfolding and with Sula we talked about the relationships among the women but we also talked about what is happening in this town and what Sula represents to the town and then what is happening during the timeline in history so the book kind of takes place between the two world wars and so we're watching the world change as you're also like watching this 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 town change too (laughs) so I was um, reading the New York Times books section I think it was last week, they, they did a little interview with Delia Owens, who wrote Where the Crawdads Sing, which is like mm-hmm. this huge hit this year. But they asked her, what's the last great book you read? And she said, Beloved. And she said that one sentence from Toni Morrison can inspire a life of writing. 
I, yeah, I mean, I remember reading Song of Solomon in high school. I just remember reading this book and looking up and looking around and be like, are we all reading the same book? Like, because this is incredible. Like, I don't know if you, like, this is probably the best book I've ever read in my entire life. Like, what is going on? Everyone is proceeding so calmly. Like, this is what books can be. So, yeah, I, I totally agree with her. You can only hope to aspire to being half as great as Toni Morrison. What do you hope attendees are going to take away from this film? I mean, it's like that saying, you know, give people their flowers where they can still smell them. Like, we are so fortunate that Toni Morrison is is still here with us. And I know that she's finally got, you know, these accolades and this is that. But I still think in a lot of ways she's underrated. And I think there's a lot of misogynoir that is the reason why. And I don't think that she is as robustly studied or discussed or talked about as, you know, like, oh, my gosh, if I have to hear someone mention David Foster Wallace one more time, like her David Sedaris, any of the Davids. like (laughs) (laughs) So obviously, I hope that her fans who come out to see it will feel that she knows she's getting the treatment that she deserves. And I hope that people who are new to Toni Morrison or who maybe haven't, are not as deeply invested yet will be inspired to go out and read more of her catalog. Well, I know just this discussion makes me want to go back and reread a lot of the books that I read just because, you know, over time you do forget how much value they have and how much meaning they brought to you. And I'm sure, you know, just being older, I'll take something different from the books than, than what I did when I was a, a late teen or early 20s oh, yeah. young woman. Yeah, I plucked Song of Solomon off my bookshelf last night. I was like, oh, I think I'm going to reread this before the before the talk back just to immerse myself in more Morrison. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's the same thing because when I read that book, like I was in high school and now like I'm an adult, like literally half a lifetime later. And now like I'm a writer and I'm a professor. So I'm excited to, to lay my eyes on, on those pages with, um, with, with the fresh perspective. As you mentioned the book Mothers, but can you see her impact in other writers and just the ability for black writers to, to have a place? in literature now where for many years they didn't of course i would imagine almost any young black writer or up-and-coming black writer even established black writer is going to say that they've been influenced or shaped in some way by by tony morrison yeah like i read cynthia bond's ruby and that's got tony morrison's fingerprints all over it and it's also kind of centered in like a rural black town and there's like these elements of magical realism to it and the writing is just so rich i think it speaks to the fact that like oprah brought her book club back to make ruby a book club pick so and you know oprah was such a huge advocate of tony morrison and she's heavily featured in the documentary as well um why morrison was so important to her why it was so important that she was you know supporting her with the book club and she's like yeah you know i just i put in like a few easy readers and then i'd hit them with the morrison so (laughs) Um, but yeah, like I think there's definitely that 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 lineage. I think right now, particularly, it's exciting to be a black writer. There seems to be like a wave that's been coming through. I think Jasmine Ward is really um, the fact that she won the National Book Award basically back to back like that um, has really opened a lot of doors for a lot of writers, a lot of Southern writers. Cassie Lehman is like my, one of my favorite writers. Um, I admire his work a lot. And I think that he has that kind of that same admiration and love of words that 
that Morrison has and that playfulness with like sentence structure and just someone who really takes a lot of joy in the work, but also knows the work is the work. So, <laughs> so uh, the Jasmine Ward sing unburied sing. Oh, that's on my list. I have not read oh, it. Oh my have you gosh. Read it? Oh yeah. It was like that ending is just like cinematic. Amazing thing about that book is that it's got a very simple plot and pretty like simple characters and what she does with it is just so wonderful and her writing always has this kind of like haunting element to it uh but yeah seeing unburied seeing like i i must have read that book in an afternoon and just, as soon as i sat it down i was just like why even write anymore like, like <laughs> <laughs> well, let's I'm just let jesmyn ward write everything <laughs> So when I was sort of preparing for this interview with you, I read up a little bit about Toni Morrison to remind myself, and I did not realize that she had been an editor mm-hmm. at Random House, and she talks a lot about the white gaze, and I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to that. Yeah, first on the fact that she was an editor at Random House, so like I said right now, there's kind of like this wave of, of you know, black writers, and Toni Morrison, like, created her own wave when she was an editor at Random House, because she published Angela Davis, she published Gail Jones, she was just, like, finding these black writers and, and putting them on, so she created that, that original wave. As far as, like, the white gaze goes, she talks about the white gaze, she talks about the white male gaze, and she just felt at that time that it was really important to be a black writer writing to black people. She's like, you know, anyone can read these books anyone can enjoy them this is who I'm specifically trying to speak to and she also speaks to the fact that a lot of black writers just didn't have that opportunity she talks about Frederick Douglass and you know she's like white abolitionists were funding him so there's really only so far he could go only so much he could say had to be restrained in some ways and I think black writers we still experience that kind of boxing in and you really do have to push back against that and just know very deeply who your audience is, who you want to connect to, who you're trying to speak to. I've been working on a memoir myself and it's about like dating as a black woman in Southern California. Really like you can sell a memoir on proposal these days, but I have spent a lot of time over the past few years really trying to flesh it out as much as possible because I want to make sure that none of that gets like lost in the process that this is a book for for black women about our experience and stories that don't often get told from our perspective. So I'm you know very thankful to Morrison for for really making way for that and letting people know like it is okay to write about your black experience for other black people and you don't have to explain anything to white people if you don't want to. (laughs) Well, and I think that's important for white readers to hear. Oh, absolutely. Too, because I think so much of the time, white privilege, you're not even aware that you have white privilege. And so watching her talk about that makes the white audience realize, oh, oh, I didn't even I didn't even know that this existed. So I I think that's important for the white audience to hear and to recognize that this was something that that had to be uh, a mountain that had to be climbed. Sure. I mean, that's why it was so astounding that that, you know, New York Times book review that she got for Sula, where the reviewer was like, Toni Morrison is too great of a writer to only focus on writing about like the lives of rural black people like she's above that and she'll never be taken seriously as a writer until she's writing beyond that and it was just like wow like this woman is just totally missing the fact that she is intentionally not centering whiteness here and these just like the audacity to say that Toni Morrison will never be a great writer unless she chooses to center whiteness is just that woman did not did not see through her white privilege (laughs) 
could you imagine like if that was like your claim to fame for like the rest of your life that you were the person that like <laughs> That was the Morrison. <laughs> this, is the, so that, this is the Toni Morrison wasn't ever going to be great because yeah. she only writes about black people. Like, woo. So yeah, I was wrong about that right. one. Right. <laughs> Eating crow for the rest of your life. <laughs> so let's switch gears here a little bit and talk about your role as the director of the creative writing program at Spalding. Sure. Merle Bachman, Dr. Bachman retired. So she was the original director. She was in that position for 15 years. This upcoming fall, I'm the incoming director, so they're all, you know, there's just so much to do and so many different ideas that I have and so many different things I've been thinking about. I'll have been with Spalding for about a year. I came in as an adjunct uh, last fall to teach African-American Lit. I've been freelance writing for the past uh, two and a half, three years, and really enjoying it, um, enjoying the freedom. I think I had a pretty typical standard college experience. And then I took about seven years off, um, just kind of like, you know, working in corporate America, and then just made like a huge life decision to leave my career, to leave my job, to move cities, to, to get my MFA in creative writing. Um, and I ended up going to the University of California, Riverside. And, you know, UCs are massive. There's just a lot of things that go on in academia that I did not have much of an appreciation for. And it was, you know, the same sort of things that go on in corporate America, but I was getting paid a lot more for those nuisances. So I was like, oh, no, I, I won't become a professor. And, you know, tenure track positions are so hard to come by and adjuncting doesn't pay well. I just didn't even think about that. Um, but then when I decided to adjunct this position at Spalding, I mean, Spalding is a small liberal arts college. And so that was my first um, experience and engagement with a smaller campus um, where everything functions more. It's more intimate setting. Your colleagues and your uh, faculty members, everybody's just closer. Class meets every single day, Monday through Thursday. So you're spending a considerable amount of time with your students. So it was just a totally different feeling. And I'm able to use a lot of my experience from community building to kind of like sales and marketing with a recruitment. So this is really kind of like a full spectrum, holistic position for me. Like I'm in the classroom, I'm teaching students, I'm inspiring them. And then I'm also helping people become better writers. And, you know, I'm, I've got time to work on my own writing. It's really the perfect role for me and I had no idea. <laughs> when you decided to go out to California to get your MFA, did you go out thinking, I, I want to be a, a writer, I want to write a novel? Or was it something different? I guess what what did you sort of envision? Well, I mean, like most people that write, like I've always been writing ever since I was a little kid, I can remember typing up like my very first story on the computer. My dad's retired military. My mom works at the post office. I didn't know any writers. I didn't know how you became a writer. I didn't know how you made a living as a writer. All I knew was like, you, you go to college, you get a good job. Um, and so that's what I did. I went to college. I went off to work for Journal Electric. I moved to Cincinnati for that job. I hated it. Ended up quitting. I was still with my high school sweetheart at the time. And his grandparents needed house sitters in Orange County. So after six years of dating, we moved to California and promptly broke up six months later. <laughs> but it was December in Orange County. Like I was working Laguna Beach. I was like, yeah, I'm not going to go back to Kentucky. I'm just going to ride this, this wave yeah. out, see what happens. And um, yeah, I lived in Southern California for several years. I ended up with Rubbermaid Commercial Products and they moved me up to L.A. And then they got rid of my job. But they really liked me. So they were like, just 
sit tight while we find you a different position within the company. So, so they moved me to Denver. I had to stay in Denver for about two years. I'd have to pay the relocation back. It was like seven grand and I'd already spent it all at like Bed Bath & Beyond. So... <laughs> So I was, you know, I'm like in Denver. I have no friends. I'm like 29. I'm a single black woman in Denver, Colorado. <laughs> like it was terrible. I was, I was like, okay, this isn't LA where like all my friends are. And we're like, I've built up like this community. Um, and it's not Louisville where my family is like, it's physically in between. And so I don't know why I'm here. I have no desire to be here, but I need to stay. So what can I do to get to get through. So I decided I would apply to MFA programs. I, and I spent a lot of time taking writing workshops at the Lighthouse Writers Workshop, which I think is the largest writers workshop west of the west of the Mississippi. So it's an incredible community. And that's what I did for TR. I studied the GRE, I took workshops, I got my, you know, portfolio together and I applied to MFA programs. And UC Riverside offered me the best funding. So I, I went back to California and then once I had my MFA, I was like, okay, I want to focus full time on being a writer. So I'm going to move back to Louisville. The cost of living's lower. I built up a freelance writing career doing like content writing for startups um, and also writing my relationship advice column for Leo and publishing personal essays. So. So I met the writing <laughs> That's like a really long response. I'm <laughs> sorry. Right. Like That's 20 okay. minutes later. <laughs> That's how we learn about you. <laughs> when you were in Denver, especially, did your writing sort of help you emotionally get through that period? Um, no. <laughs> no, I think what really helped me get through that tough time was like having a plan that had milestones that could be like ticked off, you know? Um, and that's kind of what I think my biggest lesson coming out of Denver was, was that you can get through anything if you can see the end and you can see the end if you have like these easy digestible steps that, that you can take. And so studying for the GRE, taking those workshops, filling out the applications really kind of helped me get through because initially, like, you know, I went out to Denver, I was just, you know, like a total mess all the time, dated a terrible, messy person. And <laughs> and when that ended, I was like, I got to get my life back on track. Like, what am I going to do? And so it was like the Capricorn in me stood up and was like, here's the plan. This is how we're getting through this. And, and that's what happened. But yeah, the writing, though, I mean, the writing covers most of my 20s and the book actually ends ends in Denver. Um, you know, cause I'm like 29 and I've just like learned all these things about myself and about dating and, you know, where all these issues come from. And, but you know, the, the things that I was writing about are very like challenging things to write about. And then also to write about them well mm -hmm. is, is challenging. So I'm one of those writers that like, I'm like a tortured writer. Like, like the writing is very like a torturous process to me. It's like, Oh God, why did I choose this life? But you know, the only time I don't feel worse than I do when I'm writing is when I should be writing, but I'm not. So I just keep writing. Well, that brings up another question. Some of your essays on long reads, a couple questions related to this. <laughs> Number one, how did you get to start writing and, and publishing your essays on long reads? But then also, you know, because you're sharing stories about your life, do you struggle with managed privacy or boundaries or, or is that even a, an issue? In grad school, you know, I mostly worked on my memoir and the 
these pieces were much longer because I'm working on, you know, chapters. But when you're writing for the internet, most pieces you write are going to be between like that 700 to 900 word range. And I knew that I had this longer essay in me, but I think it's very common to come out of MFA program and be like, oh my gosh, am I a real writer? Do I even know how to write? Oh, did I waste two years of my life? And so I was like working through all those emotions. Like I graduated in June. I got back to Louisville in August. And I probably started writing that essay in October. And it was about my journey back from California. So it's a woman of color in wide open spaces. And it's just about how like after the like, you know, I don't know if you guys heard, but MFA programs are oppressively white. So to detox from that experience, I wanted to take this road trip and be in nature. And lo and behold, nature is also really, really white. So (laughs) I write a lot about like the microaggressions and the racism that I experience on this journey and how at the end I realized that like as a black woman in this country, I can't like escape into nature, but I can escape into like the spaces black women hold for each other. So I had been working on this essay. I had also been working on trying to like create a community of writers in Louisville. So I had like a writing friend that I sent the essay to. I'm going to send this out. I'm not sure about it. Like originally that essay ends where I say like, just no way for me to escape whiteness the end and my friend who read it was was were there any like high points in this this road trip like any good points i was like you know what actually there was and so then that's how the end came about with you know i visit my friend in lincoln nebraska who's a black woman and even though we're like surrounded by like ears of corn and white people like we just have this incredible time together and it's like oh yeah because of the fact that we're like holding the space for each other and we can relate so closely with each other's experiences and so that became the new ending and i just sent it to the long reads slush inbox the like essays at long reads hey you want this essay (laughs) and uh sari emailed me back yes we love this essay we want it and she basically just threw in like a handful of commas and it ran like as is and it did really well it basically kind of went viral and so she you know asked me later that year like hey would you like to write a series for us and I still actually owe them a few more essays in that series (laughs) Um, and so the series I've been writing for them is about dating and politics because I feel like there's no greater distance than between like what we believe and who we love so (laughs) just kind of like exploring that. For those who may not know, can you describe what Long Reads is? Sure. Long Reads is a website that publishes long reads. So um, essays that are, I think, like 2,500 words or longer. Uh, They mostly call these longer essays from like around the Internet. And then they also commission essays as well. And you can also submit to as well. So it's um, personal essays. So like nonfiction. Um, As far as privacy goes, I think I was worried a lot less about that before I became like the director of a creative (laughs) writing program. But when I was just like a freelance writer writing from Louisville, because I'm not like in New York, I felt kind of like, oh, I'm just like in this little Louisville bubble and I'm sending missives out into the world. And for the most part, people locally know me from my relationship advice column and not necessarily the other things that I've been writing. And then when I leave the city and go to like conferences or read in New York, then like those people know me because of my essays, but I don't know those people because I'm not socializing with them every day. So it's a lot less of an issue. And I think when you're first starting out, there's a lot of concerns like, oh my gosh, what will my family think? What will my friends think? And a lot of that is just like arrogance because like 98% of the people you know are not going to read your work. 98% of the people you know probably don't read anything. And so they're definitely (laughs) not going to read something just because you wrote 
promote it. So you have very, very little concern there. And yeah, so there certainly been moments where someone that I wouldn't have expected to read my work had read my work. And, you know, it just, it is what it is at this point, you know, it's, it's out there. (laughs) So I'm interested in your, your Leo weekly column. Mm -hmm. Ask Mendehan. And so people just send you questions and and you pick which ones you want to answer or do you, how does that work? Yeah. And, and, and please send me questions, please, please, please. You can email ask Minda honey at leoweekly.com. I'm always, always looking for questions. So please send them in. So uh, I, yeah, I usually have like one or two questions at a time. So it's not really hard to pick. So. <laughs> if you send me a question, I will answer it. Please send me your questions. Um, but yeah, when I first moved back, I reached out to the editor at the Leo and was like, Hey, I would love to write a column Uh, for you all about boomerangs, people who move back to their hometowns in their 30s. And he's like, I would not like a column on that. However, (laughs) if you would like to write about things that we need covered, please feel free to come by the office. So I went by the office and by the end of that conversation, it was like, you need a relationship advice column. It's like, in fact, I do. Um, I think we've been talking about the fact that I'm working on a dating memoir and anthology of assholes. And so... (laughs) have a lot to say about dating um, because I've done it spectacularly poorly. So (laughs) that's kind of how it came about. It'll be three years in October that I've been writing this column. Um, Weeks that I don't have questions, I'll write, you know, a tidbit from my life or, you know, whatever thoughts I'm having. Uh, But for the most part, people send in a question and I answer it. And and Louisville's small, so sometimes, like, you know, I'll run into people, um, you know, somebody will be like, I'm adult braces! Like, you know, like, you really helped me out or whatever. So that's that's been really great. It's been a lot of fun. So something that I've heard you say a couple times as we've been discussing is that you've reached out yes <laughs> to like reached out to Longreads, reached out to to Leo. So talk a little bit about that because that I mean and, and I'm a freelance writer too. So there's a certain amount of putting yourself out there and opening yourself up to opportunities but also potentially rejections. So yeah. talk a little bit about that and your experience. I think I'm pretty aggressive as far as like writers go (laughs) because I do have like that sales background. And so from working, especially from working for Rubbermaid, like I covered half of the state. I came into that position brand new. Nobody wants to work with like a new rep. And I was the number one salesperson in my region in the first year, number seven in the nation. And it's because like, you know, I just showed up and I just kept knocking on doors because at the end of the day, it's a numbers game. So there's some bit of advice floating around the internet that as a writer, you should seek to have a hundred rejections a year, because if you get a hundred rejections, then that will equate to X number of acceptances. You just have to go for it, you know, like all the time I've had people like reach out to me like, oh, can you put me in touch with a long reads editor? And it's like, no, just send, send it, send it through. And if it's good, I promise you they, they will see it. They will get published. But yeah, like it's just you got to create your own opportunities. Yeah. People ask me, how'd you get your Leo column? It's like I asked for one. And, you know, I tell people like you don't have to compete for the opportunities you create. So yeah, you can just go out there and and seek out these opportunities. But yeah, you just have to be aggressive. You have to create a pipeline. You have to set goals and say, hey, I'm going to send out X number of letters of interest a week, or I'm going to pitch X number of articles per week. And then you got to track that on an Excel sheet. I became a writer, so I didn't have to deal with numbers or Excel <laughs> sheets. And now like I live by them. 
the secrets no writer wants to actually admit. That's, I mean, that's the truth. Like, you know, as a freelancer, like I doubled my income year over year. And it was just because of like that, that aggressiveness and that tracking and that forecasting, like looking at everything from, you know, a month, 90 days out and figuring out what financial goals I wanted to hit. So which again is can be very atypical for, <laughs> for writers but you know i'm also like a woman in my 30s who's single and wants to maintain a certain lifestyle yes. so yeah, <laughs> so i write all the priorities. words <laughs> so i know you're also doing a book challenge and i want to hear all about that i have i have a friend a writer friend the same one who helped me out the ending of that essay her and her husband and their children every year do like a book reading challenge and if you like hit your goal that you set for yourself you get to go to the bookstore at the end of the year but gets to get a new book and i was like oh wow can i can like can i get on this and they're like sure and then i was like oh wait could we get all of our friends in on this? <laughs> we decided to launch Book It With Friends. And it's a play off of like the Pizza Hut book reading challenge from our youth. And we basically had like a $25 buy-in. And you set your personal goal for how many books you want to read, how many books you read last year. And then we also had tiers. So if you read more than five books, you're in this tier. If you read more than 25, you're in this tier. If you read the most books, you're eligible like in this tier. So I think we ended up with like maybe like a couple thousand dollars or something like that. That will because we have 50 people signed up for it. Um, so I just created like a Google survey kind of doc. So every time you read a book, you go in and you fill it out and then it auto populates a Google sheet. And my sister, she's a financial analyst, did all these wonderful magical things with the <laughs> spreadsheet. So now we have like this dashboard and we can collect all the data so we can see like what percentage of books um, have people read thus far this year that are by women, which is the most read book, how many audio books, what's the average length of a book? Are people reading more fiction? Are they reading more poetry? Or we have so much data that we've collected over across these 50 people as well as like how many books are people reading on average how many books were you did you read in july versus in january um and people can go in and see the spreadsheet and see what other people are reading as well so if you need ideas for what you want to read next and it auto ranks it too so you can always like pull it up and see where you fall in the ranking i think i'm like 14 or something like that. So where does the money part come in? So at the end of the year, so if you fall into those different tiers, we'll draw a name and you'll, I think each tier is like 200 bucks. So yeah, so you'll get like the $200. Um, I think you get your buy-in back if you um, actually meet the goal you set for yourself. I don't think I'm going to meet my goal because I'll have to read six books each month through the end of the year in order to meet. Yeah, I felt a little behind. I was like, oh yeah, I'm just going to set my goal for like 52 books, a book a week. That'll be easy. No, it was it was not easy. So I don't know if I'm going to hit my goal. But we have a whole list of like how the rules work and what books you can read, like no textbooks and right. no cookbooks, like right. that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, who read the most like diverse books, like all that sort of stuff. So depending on what tier your name will be drawn and then also like whoever reads the most books will get like 200 bucks That's really too. cool. It reminds me of Goodreads with their reading challenges, but with money. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you got some riding on it if you don't yeah. meet yeah. your goal. Yeah, and I send out like a, a monthly update sometimes it's bi-monthly sometimes i miss a month but you know so we're constantly reminding people like hey like this is still going on and and of course you're gonna have some people who just kind of like fall off early but you know it's fine we put their money in their money stays in the pot and we set it up through paypal pool so everybody paid their money and then so that money is just like sitting there so 
yeah, no one has to worry that like we're going to get to the end of the year and it's going to be like, psych, I spent all the money. <laughs> you made a visit to California. Yeah. <laughs> Hope you all love the photos from my turkey trip. <laughs> But yeah, and we got, we had 50 people sign up this year and we had more people, like as people have been hearing about it and we've been posting like the, I mean, the dashboard that my sister created, somebody was like, is that an app? It's like, nope, it's a Google sheet. So um, we're hoping that next year we'll have even more people involved and we are trying, we've been trying to do like local gatherings, but we also have people like around the nation who are also participating. So That'd a lot of fun. cool yeah. to have like, like local meetups for the people who are in this group. I love yeah. that idea. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And by far, <laughs> most people are more people are reading Becoming by Michelle Obama than anything else <laughs> yeah like most of the nation right. yeah. Yeah. well this has been really awesome we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to talk about what we're all reading We are back in the studio with local writer Minda Honey, and we're going to be talking about what we're currently reading. So, Minda, I'm going to start with you. Either tell us, well, you can tell us both, what you're currently reading, if it's something you particularly are enjoying, as well as a book that's your sort of your favorite. Wow. Okay. So right now I'm kind of in the middle of a couple of books. I just picked back up uh, Tony Kate Bombar's The Salt Eaters. And I, you know, just trying to shake up my own writing and get out of a bit of a writing rut that I've been in. And the, you know, Tony Kate Bombar does incredible things with words, particularly with The Salt Eaters. Like it is just such a masterpiece. So I've been working my way back through that book. And then I also have an advanced copy of Susan Strait's memoir. I believe it's called In the Country of Women. And I'm um, trying to read that before it before it drops in a month or so. But she was one of my professors at UC Riverside. And, you know, she's been writing for a very long time and it's been really interesting to just kind of get to know more of her backstory and I've met her daughters and it's kind of their story too she's working her way through the generations of women Susan Strait wrote um High Wire Moon and I mean she's just written so many books but (laughs) but yeah so so yeah so I've been working my way through her memoir I finished um Ginny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing and I that book really blew me away and it's um How to Do Nothing Resisting the Attention Economy so she really kind of links our escape into social media and this virtual world with the neglect of the environment that's been happening like the devastation of nature and how if we were to reroute ourselves in the physical world and the natural world that is a way that we can resist the you know the the virtual world and I write for Dropbox's blog and so I interviewed her for it and she is also just like really fascinating person and her mind works in some incredible ways and I just had so many thoughts after I finished that book and a lot of them were just around like yes like social media and the internet they're collecting all these data points about us and they're putting them into this algorithm and but can they ever really know us? Like, you know, are, like, is your who you are like a fixed point in space and time? No. So they can't ever really know you. So they can't ever like and and OK, great. So you know what type of cereal I want to buy. Wonderful. Like that doesn't mean like you've captured my essence. Doesn't mean you have any idea of like <laughs> right. what my soul is. And because of that, will any of this ever really, really matter? Like, you know, on some level, on some spiritual level, it's like you you can opt out. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so lots of really great thoughts um, about that book. And 
I've had some really great discussions with other folks who have read it. Uh, I think it's just going to be like the sleeper hit of the summer. So highly, highly, highly recommend it. And what? then, of course, Toni Morrison. Rereading some Toni Morrison. <laughs> yeah, yep, yep. Re- yeah, picking back up that Song of Solomon, too, because I need to add a third book to be in the middle of. So, yeah. <laughs> Amy, what are you, what do you have going on right now? I just finished a book by Ruth Reichel, who is a food writer. Mm-hmm. She was the uh, restaurant critic at the New York Times. She was also the editor-in-chief of Gourmet Magazine. She's written several books. I'm a foodie, so if I need a comfort read, I'm also looking towards food memoirs. Favorite restaurant in the city? My favorite restaurant? Oh, I've got several. I've got many. (laughs) We love Luvino. We love ethnic food actually queen of sheba that's probably my 16 year old daughter's favorite place i really love it too anyway we have lots of different <laughs> places but um this book by ruth reichel it came out i think in march it's called save me the plums and all of her books recently have been memoirs about different parts of her life probably my favorite one was tender at the bone which is about her childhood and sort of her figuring out that she liked food and working with food, but also about her mother who was bipolar. Mm. And she had lots of really interesting stories about growing up with her mother. In fact, she has a whole other book just about her mom's life that she wrote that was very interesting. This particular one is based on the work that she did as the editor-in-chief at Gourmet from 1999 through 2009. And that period of time is particularly interesting because at the end of that that's when that magazine folded and when she took over the magazine it was a very sort of uptight stodgy magazine just for very like upper crust people and when she took it over she really wanted to change that magazine around and and make it more for the average person dining things that people would actually make in their kitchen um so in my kitchen it has to be five ingredients or less (laughs) they might have had a column about that but (laughs) but anyway during her time there they started hiring like famous writers to write sort of edgy articles for them and that was a very new thing so i did really like this um memoir i didn't like it quite as well as some of her earlier ones. I think Tinder at the Bone is probably my favorite. But I've always sort of liked magazines. And when I was in high school, I thought I wanted to eventually write for a magazine. So I felt I found the whole part of the inner workings of the magazine world very fascinating. Well, I uh, recently read The Sense of an Ending by Julian Barnes. Um, it was the winner of the Man Booker Prize. And it was a very, it was a short novel. It reminded me in, in some ways of a separate piece by John Knowles. It was very, it was a very quiet book. And it was about getting older, but also how sometimes what you think you understand about life, you really haven't understood at all. Um, the character is named uh, Tony, the main character, and he has some friends, Uh male friends that he goes to high school with and as he gets older he thinks he understands something that happened with one of his friends and at the end there's this twist and you realize that and he realizes that he had it wrong the whole time 
So I like that there's really not a whole lot of action that takes place in this story. So if, if you're the type of person who wants an action-packed story, this is probably not for you. But it was a quick read, and, and I enjoyed it. So normally this third segment would be us asking our guests their top five, but we are not able to do that today. Our interview with uh, the marvelous Minda Honey resulted in that at the very end, the recording didn't go through. So instead, we're going to take this opportunity and you and I are going to discuss a little bit about my interview with Kim Vadreen last week. Yes, even though I was enjoying the beach, I was bummed after I listened to it. I was very bummed that I did not get to participate in that conversation. It was a wonderful interview, and I was regretful that you couldn't be there, although I know the beach is very awesome. But I thought that you would have had a lot of questions for her as an English teacher yourself. Absolutely. It, it got me thinking about a couple articles that have to do with the classics and whether the classics are racist and anti-Semitic. Uh, one of them is from NPR. It's called Dr. Seuss Books Can Be Racist, But Students Keep Reading Them. And that is from February 26, 2019. The other one is called uh, Virginia Woolf, Snob, Richard Wright, Sexist, Dostoevsky, Anti-Semite. And that was from, from January of 2019. So two different articles we found related to the classics. So I was just wondering about your thoughts, Amy, on whether we should keep reading the classics. I guess my thoughts are that we should, but that we need to be mindful so one thing I did think about after I interviewed her, I always think of questions after I've, we've done our interviews of things I wish that I had asked. But an observation that I made later on was that the classics that Kim talked about that didn't work for her book club were both from white males. And that the books that I talked about that our book club has discussed and were very well received were all by women. But it made me think about our conversation with Minda earlier about the white gaze and that those books, even though they may have been written by white women, did not probably have the level of white gaze. So if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying that even though they were white women, because women, including white women, have been subjected to white men's rule and authority, just as black women, black men, Asian women and men, Native American women and men and so on, that that makes it more approachable? That's exactly what okay. I'm saying. Good. I'm, I'm glad I got that right. So, um, well, the articles and the conversation with Kim got me thinking about To Kill a Mockingbird, which I have uh, taught before and I will be teaching again this year. And I have always loved that book, but I listened to the audio version of Ghost Set a Watchman. Now, I had been hesitant to do that. I did not do it right away when it was published because yeah. I had heard that basically, you know, in air quotes, Atticus Finch is a racist. And I was like, oh, how how can Atticus be a racist? I've stayed away from that book, mainly because I was put off by the way they got the book. Mm -hmm. Harper Lee was supposedly on her deathbed, was very ill, was not 
Of her right mind. Of her right mind. And a family member published the book. And it was a book that she said she never wanted published. So I was really turned off by that. But then when I heard that Atticus Finch is now a racist, made me really not not want to read it. But now I'm interested to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah. So I listened to it. And I mean, it didn't make me think necessarily that Atticus Finch is a racist. It did not make me think that. But it did make me look at the pedestal that he has been put on. So I had always thought of him as a character who was a social justice pioneer, mm-hmm. you know, that he was ahead trying of his time. ahead of his time, mm-hmm. trying to save Tom Robinson. And so what Go Set a Watchman did was it made me consider whether Atticus was just doing his job, that as a person who loves the law, that he was just doing what he had to do, not because Tom Robinson was innocent and a black man, and those two being important factors, that he was just doing it because Tom Robinson was innocent, and that the black part of that story wasn't as important. And so so I do think that it has made me, I guess, reconsider my perception of Atticus. And so I feel like when I reread it in order to teach it, I will go into it with a fresh set of eyes and bring up the conversation to my students. Like, what do we think? Should Mm -hmm. Atticus Finch really be on a pedestal? Is that something that white readers have done to say, hey, look, look what we've Mm -hmm. done for, for black people. And I think that's a valuable part of the conversation and hopefully will help students be, I guess, more critically minded as they read the book. Well, and honestly, it's a good idea to do that with whatever you read. The New York Times article that you referred to, they mentioned the book um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kesey. And they were saying that if you step back and you view it from a Native American point of view, there's one character in that book um, who is Native American, and it's not the best portrayal, but it's one of the few characterizations of Native Americans in a lot of classic modern literature. And how would you view that? And on the other end, if you are someone who has mental illness yourself or has someone in your family with mental illness, how would you view this story? Anything we read, it's a good idea to step back and think about all the different perspectives as well as your own. And sometimes it's hard to think that way. I mean, with our conversation with Minda, and we were talking about white privilege, you know, as you were saying, a lot of times with white privilege, if you're white, you don't even necessarily know that you have it until someone points it out to you. Mm -hmm. To pull yourself back and look at it from somebody else's point of view who may not be like you, you don't get it. Another thing that these articles made me think about is how as teachers and as readers, really, I mean, I'm thinking about the reading that I might do with my kids or the books I might recommend to my kids to also be really explicit about the purpose, why you're asking them to read it. For example, you might pick a classic because it shows a certain style of writing, say Hemingway. You might pick Hemingway's writing to show his style of writing, even though he was a womanizer. Right. Well, I don't agree with his womanizing, but he was a masterful writer at times. And so I think that you really shouldn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. There's still value in, in that writing. 
Right. Well, in the other article you're talking about with Dr. Seuss, um, I think Dr. Seuss wrote numerous books. And while this article suggested that only 2% of the characters were black and that the ones that he did portray, it was a caricature, most of his characters, I would say, weren't even human. They were animals of some sort. So there's a lot of great things that Dr. Seuss wrote Do we need to read all of them to our children if someone finds them offensive? I would say no. But that doesn't mean we can't read the ones that don't have those connotations to them. There's a lot of great stuff out there. We had talked about someone like Sherman Alexie, who is a Native American writer, and he has been accused of... uh, Sexual harassment. Sexual harassment. And should we still read him? And I would say yes that he did so many great things for Native American literature. He really opened the door. He cracked it open a bit for then lots of other Native American writers to feel like they could be part of the literature conversation and get their work out there. Yes, he has done some abhorrent things, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he doesn't have something to contribute and that we can't learn something and there isn't good coming from his writing. And so I think it's important to be aware of the negatives. I guess look at it with a critical mind. Look at it critically that, you know, yes, there's bad, but there's also good yeah. that can be found there. Have an, have an open mind about it to all things. So, Amy, I did have a, while we were having this conversation, I thought about a book that I had read when my daughter was very, very young. So she's 15. So it's been a long time. It's a picture book, and it's called Mama, Do You Love Me? by Barbara M. Juice. I read this to my daughter and loved it. It's a wonderful story about a Native American mother and her daughter and their relationship and the unconditional love between them. So sometime later, I found an article about this book, and it was talking about how some parts of the culture that were depicted in the book were not accurate. And so it really made me question like whether I could even like the book anymore. And so... Or whether you should. Or whether I should like the book. Mm -hmm. Like, am I allowed to like this book if it's not 100% accurate? And so I go back and forth. And and I know sometimes this is white privilege talking. For me, I thought, well, if it depicts Native American culture and in a way that's positive, positive, then does it matter if it's not 100% accurate? Because I don't know any different. Are, are, Are we getting to the point where we can't see the forest for the trees? Mm -hmm. But then I think to myself, well, if it was my culture that was not being represented or was being misrepresented, then I might feel differently about it. Anyway, I still like the book, but that whole experience just sort of left me confused. I think really the whole... (laughs) The whole issue, it's really confusing to know. You feel like some of these books that get a bad rap for good reason still like them. Does that make you a bad person then? Because you still kind of like that book, even though the author is a horrible human being or they depict a certain ethnic group in a way that a lot of people consider wrong. I guess I just still go back to we just need to have an open mind. And in that case, and conversations the, and too. Conversations. I guess. And the book you're talking about, it doesn't necessarily matter what ethnicity the characters in that book are. It doesn't matter whether they're Inuit or Hispanic or whether they're white. The story itself is the same and it's a positive story. So to me, it doesn't necessarily matter if all of the details are exact. But you're right. 
both of us happen to be white and maybe we would feel differently if it was if it was our culture i don't know that's something for everybody to think about this has been a very deep conversation it has and we don't have any answers so (laughs) we don't know just keep thinking and keep reading i guess thanks for joining us today we're under construction and currently switching sites for our webpage. but for now for show notes for any episode you can find them at our current blog site The address is a little long to say, but you can find it on our Facebook page or by Googling Perks of Being a Book Lover. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. And if you are a member of a book club or are sharing reading in some way and would like to be a guest, please contact us at any of these sites as well. You can also leave a message on our Perks line at 502-509-7736. We always want to hear from fellow readers. A huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Podbean, and SoundCloud.